John 3.16, it says this. Now, I don't want you to feel intimidated. I, I have this one memorized. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm a pastor, but it's not important, really. I don't mean to start this sermon out bragging, but um, it's up on the screen in case you don't have it memorized like I do. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, will you go with me to Colossians 3.16? See what we did there? Colossians 3.16, and it says, let the word of Christ or the story of Jesus dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Read that again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Who is you? You individually and us or you corporately and collectively. This is a verse written to a community, a verse written to a church. Let the word of Christ, the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I'm going to title this message, The Other 316. The other 316. I know this might sound a little funny, but um, I've, I've got several 316 verses in my heart. And for the next probably few weeks, we'll see how it goes. Easter is on the way. How many excited for Easter? It's going to be great. And Easter is awesome. It's actually more than an Easter egg hunt. Easter egg hunts are awesome. They have so much to do with the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what's so beautiful. Every egg we get, we celebrate his resurrection. Where did the Easter bunny come from? That's the million dollar question. But um, really excited about Easter. But for the next few weeks, I'd like to look at a few 316s in the Bible that I think connect to the big idea of John 316. So I'm gonna title these messages, The Other 316. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for the moments we share. We pause to acknowledge you because without you, uh, this is just a talk. It's just an inspirational moment, but with you, um, the trajectory of our lives can be transformed and changed. You can take these ordinary moments and make them extraordinary. We ask that your story would come to life as we tell it and proclaim it and declare it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all the off-season moves. Again, give Coach Carroll and John Schneider wisdom during the draft. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. And everybody said. Have you, ever, um, have you ever pretended like something didn't happen when it clearly did? I mean, it, 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 like everyone knows it did, but maybe it was so embarrassing. Uh, maybe it was so unnerving. Maybe it was so ridiculous that you just decided, I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. It's like when I was 10 years old at Jackie Loman's house. Jackie Loman, who's still my friend, he lived four houses down on 76 in Gleason in Portland, Oregon. Keep Portland weird. That's like a motto in that city. Did you know that? But um, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon, four houses down from the Lomans, Jack and Libby Loman. And Libby Loman kept a very, very clean house, which is imperative to the story because I got to the Loman's house. And I don't know if this is TMI. I don't know if this is too much information. Like I, I clarified to you what TMI means. Um, but but I, I'm, you call me weird, okay? But I, I don't prefer using the facilities uh, in other people's homes, particularly when you gotta do more than tinkle. Is that TMI? Like, I'm, try I'm trying to use the nicest words out here, Larry. Okay, I'm doing my best. I see Larry Ostrom. Okay, Larry's rolling with me. Okay, so, so I'm trying my best here, okay? So when I, don't like to do, I don't like to do that in other people's houses, okay? I definitely don't like to do it in public, in public restrooms, but sometimes you have to. So I'm over at the Lomans, I'm 10 years old, and all of a sudden, nature calls. And nothing you can do about it. You know, there's just, there's, mom said there's going to be days like this, okay? So I run to the bathroom, and I use the facilities. Isn't that a nice way to say it? When I was a youth pastor, we did not use these nice terms. I'm just saying. But use the facility. Now, <clears throat> this is also a sticky, that, that's, not, that's not the right way to say this. This is also, 
a difficult way to say this, but I, um, so, so I was raised by a very cleanly woman, and, and my mom is, is incredible and keeps a very tight ship, and, and so I was, I'm very uh, passionate about ensuring that I'm clean, and so, so I will use a lot of um, uh, TP when I'm using the facilities. Can you imagine if you brought a friend today? Like, man, usually we don't talk about this, man. So I proceed to use an entire roll. This is a true story, okay? And Libby Loman had the roll. You know you've ever been to somebody's house when they got a whole brand new roll and it's folded. It's folded, you know, like, I mean, it's, if you know what I'm talking about, folded, like it's that little point at the end, it's like folded, and you're like, wow, these people have prepared for our visit, right? That's Libby Loman. She folded her toilet paper, a whole roll. I used the whole roll. Okay, the entire roll. I don't know why, just, you know, whatever, okay? We're all works in progress. I'm on a journey, so are you. Okay, so naturally the toilet cannot contain that amount of teepee, so a profound clog happens, right? I leave, I just leave, I just leave the restroom. I walk out to the kitchen and I'm sitting there. A minute and 30 seconds goes by, Libby Loman notices maybe a smell, which is ridiculous, and way too far here at 8.46 in the morning. Okay, she goes in there, and she goes, and she's Irish, and I can't do an Irish accent, but she's something like, oh, dear, dear. You know, that was like my Irish accent. <laughs> but um, she's like, oh, dear, dear, and she comes out. It's me and her son, Jackie, right? At the time, their only child, and she goes, she goes uh, do you boys know what happened to the toilet? It's, I'm a minute and 30 seconds from walking out of that, that restroom, and I go, no, I have no idea. And then I left. Right? It, it reminds me of having dinner right, right around the same time, same neighborhood, 76 in Gleason, four houses down from the Lomans. We had a bunch of friends and family over, and uh, my aunt and uncle, if you know Pastor Jerry McKinney and Tammy McKinney, they now pastor in City Church San Diego and actually are coming to church today. So uh, Mimi, I love you, and I believe you're going to watch this at 1015. So just know that I love you, and I mean to share this story only to carry your burden with you. So we're sitting at the dinner table. Now, some of you didn't grow up like this, but um, uh, uh, somebody asked, like, what was your house like growing up? And, and, and you know, some of you will be like, well, you know, the, the, the dining room is kind of close to the living room. We lived in a house where every room was close to one, one room, if you know what I'm talking about. So we had like a room, it, it functioned as a living room and a dining room and a nook and a kitchen. It was all one room, if you know what I'm talking about. So, so when I say the bathroom opened to the dining room, so did all three bedrooms and the other bathroom. It was not a large house, okay? So, so Aunt Mimi, I didn't notice that she left, okay? We're all at the dinner table. I think it was like a Sunday afternoon after church, and Aunt Mimi went to use the facilities. Naturally, of course, no big deal. We're all sitting at the table having a great time. All of a sudden, I've got to go, right? I didn't notice that Mimi had gotten up and already used the facility, and I went to the closest facility, which was approximately four feet away from the dinner table because that was the size of our home, okay? Now, when I'm approaching the door, of the bathroom, we had one of those doors, very flimsy, light doors, that locked 50% of the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nope, nope, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It, it had a lock on it, but it wasn't a sure lock, and we didn't have money to ensure that it was a sure lock. So you just kind of, like, has anybody ever gone to the bathroom like this? You know what I'm talking about, okay? That's how close the toilet is to the door, like, that's real life, okay? Bam! Someone opens it, whoo, right? That's one of these doors. So, but I don't think Mimi was like this. She definitely should have been. Because I opened the door, and, and there's my aunt, like I have never seen her before. And so I step back, I freeze, I panic. And the door just self-opens, you know what I'm talking about? Just like glides open. And everybody is right here. And we're all having dinner, or a brunch, I should say, Sunday brunch. And I step back at total shock, and I freeze. And everybody, to be honest, froze. <laughs> Mimi said nothing. And we all just looked at our food, each other, my aunt. 
And finally, my mom broke me out of the trance. She goes, Judah, shut the door. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. I, Mimi, I'm really sorry. So I shut the door, right? And we all sit down. Now, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna pretend like that didn't happen? Yes, we are, because I sat down and somebody said this, wow, this pot roast is delicious. <laughs> True story, Mimi comes out of the bathroom and I remember my dad going, oh, there you are. Come on, I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking around like, are we doing this? I lean over to Mimi, I'm like, one or two, one or two, you know, like 10 years old, you know. Have you ever pretended like something didn't happen when it clearly happened? Hey, that actually happened. Now, why am I asking that question today? Because in the book of Colossians, actually, literally, historically, this church that is growing in Colossae has actually been pressured by philosophers and people and teachers and leaders and thinkers to live as if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen. They were being pressured from all sides to say, hey, John 3.16 didn't happen. I don't mean the actual writing of the verse. I mean what John 3.16 declares historically, actually, literally happened, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin and took upon himself the sins of humanity that were committed, were being committed, would ever be committed, and he took that all upon himself so that we could be made right with God forever and ever. These Christians, these early believers, Believers were being pressured to say, hey, it actually didn't happen like that. It's kind of a fairy tale. Jesus is a good man, but he wasn't the God man. Like, no one can save you from your sins. He wasn't the real Messiah. They're being pressured to act like it didn't happen. But how many know it, it did happen? It did happen. For the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes or receives him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we say it happened. When we say it happened, what do we mean it, it happened? Well, let's put John 3.16 back up on the screen because this happened. This happens. This is happening, if you will. For instance, God still loves the world. God. Now, when you, if you're sitting here today and say, well, Judah, again, what, can you clarify for me what happened? Well, first of all, the whole story of God can be summed up in this verse because the whole story of God starts with God. I'd like to draw your attention to Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning, God. The whole narrative, the whole story, the whole book starts off with an assumption that you understand that God is supreme, God is first, God is foremost. He is so first, he is so foremost, he is so important that the Bible starts with in the beginning God. Let that sink in for a second. In the beginning God. Think about that, just that, we stop right there. Those are just the first few words of the entire book. What does that tell us about God? He evidently, in the beginning God, it does not say the beginning began and then God started up. It tells us that God was before the beginning, that God began the beginning, that God has no beginning and equally he has no end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what happened has to start with our understanding, which is very hard for us to even ascertain or understand, to be honest. And part of our brain goes boing, like that doesn't, I, don't, I don't, can't fathom. Of course we can't. If we could fathom God, we would become God. God is beyond our imagination. He is exceedingly, abundantly above all we can ask, think, or even imagine. He can do it, but he is exceedingly, abundantly above. He is God all by himself, the old preachers used to say. He doesn't need anybody else. He is God. He began the beginning. So God, 
God who, who spoke stars and solar systems and galaxies and rivers and seas and oceans and trees into existence and then put the centerpiece of his creation, the one centerpiece of his creation, which he says, let us, let us make man in our image, the, the human being who will bear the eternal soul, who will be the image bearer in the midst of our creation, my creation, let's put man there, and then he creates utopia and puts man and then creates woman, a perfect partner for one another, and puts them in a garden. And in this garden, there is waterfront property, and there is gold, and there is all kinds of natural sugars. Some, somebody say amen. And there's orchards of trees, and they're all there. And by the way, it's pure nudity. Awesome in the right context, right? Everything is sinless and wonderful and perfect because that's who God is. That's his plan. God is not the great party spoiler. He's not in heaven trying to be the eternal cosmic wet blanket to your enjoyment and your thrill. God created fun. He created satisfaction. He created sex. He created joy. He created fulfillment. He created contentment. This is all God's doing, and God loves what he made. But what he allowed and what he made was free will. Now, where do the lines go in sovereignty and free will? If we're going to err, I suggest we err on God. I, we err on sovereignty. I definitely think it's more sovereignty than free will, but I think simultaneously we have to protect both because God instituted free will. And he told Adam and Eve, he said, you can eat of any tree, which by the way, were there thousands of trees? Were there tens of thousands of trees? I don't know. But there was only one that they couldn't eat from, which is indicative of God's character. God will always stack the odds in your favor. He loves you. He is for you. He says, you got orchards to eat from, just one you can't. And that one tree ensured it protected God's definition of love. For if love is forced, it's not love. You go to jail for stuff like that. God wants a choice that we would not be Pinocchio so that we would choose God. So he puts a choice in the garden. And because we had the power of free will, we chose to be selfish. And Adam and Eve partook of the one tree they were not to partake of. At that point, God removes them from the garden. Why does he do that? Because if he does not remove them from the garden, they live in this state forever. And this state is a dying state, which is to say it's a haunting state. It is a state of shame and guilt where you know something is wrong. Many people will philosophize and say there is no such thing as sin. Let me punch your mom in the face and ask you again, is there a thing called sin? No, we intuitively know there's right and wrong. We intuitively know there's bad and good. We intuitively know there's good and evil. Even Hollywood portrays it. Where does that come from? Because it's in our DNA. It's in our makeup. We know when something is right. We just somehow know it's right. And we know when something is wrong. We just somehow know it's wrong. And when there is wrong in your life, there is shame and there is guilt and there is pain. And God not wanting Adam and Eve to live in an eternal state of shame and, and pain and guilt guilt, he removes them from the garden and limits their lifespan. And ever since then, the Bible says we're born in sin, and that is why literally our bodies are dying. If you haven't noticed, gravity is taking over. Chelsea said the other day, we were at the pool. Relax. We were in LA, we're at the pool, and she says, we need to kick 40 in the butt. And I said, aren't we? She says, no. Not really. And I'm like, now when you say we, do you mean me? <laughs> How many know gravity happens to us all? Right? Your body just starts going down. Right? It's, it's, it's the result of, of sin and the result of our own choices. And all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And as long as you got sin and I got sin, I can't save you from your sin because I can't even save myself from sin. So God, still in love with a world that is now racked and broken and hemorrhaging from our own free will choice. And now there is 
wars and now upheavals and earthquakes and tsunamis and people ask, what is going on? This earth and planet is now subject to futility and sin has compromised the whole system. And now there are horrible, despicable, deplorable things that are transpiring even now on this broken planet. And yet there is a God who is perfect and still loves this place. That is why as Jesus followers, we cannot afford to have an attitude that says, oh, this is this wretched place. I'm on my way to heaven. Well, this wretched place is loved by the God you worship. And he loves you that are broken and he loves all that are broken. God loves his oceans. He loves his mountains. He loves his trees. He loves his animals. But do you know who he loves most? You, you, you. And none of this is a surprise to God, yet in his sovereignty, he has given place for free will. And now we are where we are, and yet what is the transcendent truth today that we're here to celebrate is that God loves us in spite of us. He loves us, and I love that, I love how John 3, 6, he so loves. He, we're here today to celebrate that he doesn't just love, he so loves. God cannot deny his love for you just as much as he cannot deny that he is who he is. In fact, he loved you before you were born. He loved you before you were conceived. He loved you long before you were named. God so loves the world. God loved this world not because this world was lovable, but because he is love. And he cannot stop being who he is. So God recognized that we cannot be saved by ourselves. We need someone amongst us who yet does not have sin, who can then take upon himself or herself our sin so that we then can be forgiven and made right with God. So for thousands of years, there were rules, rules, rules. And the Bible says all those rules did was remind us we can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. Whether the rules were 600 laws that the Jews tried to adhere to or the, ten, the famous Ten Commandments. It doesn't matter if it was 10 or 600 or 2 or 1. We could not keep it. And the Bible says if you broke one law, it was as good as breaking all 600 laws. So we cannot help ourselves. So God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God became man. He took on the form of a man, but more than the form of a man, he became a man. He was fully man and fully God, for he had to become us so he could save us. For the Bible says he was tempted in all ways that we were tempted. God could not just swoop down in a cape like Superman and not deal with the realities of what we deal with and save us. He came down, became a man, was birthed of a woman, born in a stable, born in a barn and went through puberty and went through maturity and went through development and experienced all of those challenges and journeys and temptations and impulses yet without sin. And for some three and a half years, his public ministry, he went around, he went around the Bible says, doing good and healing all who were afflicted. The Bible doesn't record one person that Jesus rejected who came to him who needed healing and needed help and needed aid, including people that were rejected by society, overlooked by sophisticated people who thought themselves to be better than others. He was indignant. He was passionate about children. He was passionate about women. He was passionate about Samaritans who were mixed breeds according to the Jews. Jesus broke all the social constructs to give us a clear picture of who our God is. Whether you believe in him or not, he is your God. He is the only God, and by definition, if there are multiple gods, there are no gods. The word God in and of itself tells us there has to be only one. If there was more than one, we got a problem. It's like me today telling you you're all in charge. If we're all in charge in this room, nobody's in charge in this room. There is only one God. That's why the word only is imperative in John 3, 16. He gave his only son. He gave his own. Not only does it communicate the love of God, but it communicates the supremacy of God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to eternity. Nobody experienced the Father's love except through me, except through 
me. So Jesus comes and he gives his life. Many people have said it's so sad that the Romans took the life of Jesus or the centurion or the, no, 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 Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not shockingly killed. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And he willingly went to the cross. And even as he hung there and his lungs filled with blood for some six hours, he said seven different statements from the cross, one of which was to one gentleman on this side and another gentleman on this side, for one on this side mocked him and said, if you're God, save yourself and us. And the other said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's as if God is telling us you are one or the other, but there is no in-between. Do you accept Jesus or do you reject Jesus? For Jesus is God and he hangs there and he says to the desperate dying thief who deserved to be executed. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not your background. It's not your pedigree. It's not your education. It's not your accomplishments. It's in your last breath. You can say, remember me. And God is so good. He will take you to paradise, which is where you were always meant to be. Paradise restored. The garden restored. And that's where this thief belongs by the grace of God. It's the story of Jesus. He's then buried, and on the third day, he defeats the ultimate enemy, death itself, defeats death, hell, and the grave, appears to hundreds of people, and now everything has changed. That happened. And yet there are early believers in Colossae who are being pressured to say that didn't really happen. It's not what you think it is. In fact, it was so dramatic. If you'll go with me for a second in the Gospel of Luke and look how dramatic the crucifixion was. It says in Luke chapter 23, look what it says in Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Look at verse 45. While the sun's light failed, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. You mean to tell me that even the sun that hangs in the sky was like, whoa. The earth, in one other gospel, the earth began to shake because even the soil was like, whoa. That is the one who designed and created us with his breath. And he has just given up his life. Why? Whoa. What is going on? Even the elements can acknowledge this happened. This is happening. And notice what it says. It says, now centurion who helped put him on the cross was there. And the lights go out. And the rocks begin to rumble. And the curtain is torn in two. And he says, certainly this man was innocent. So even the centurion stood there and said, this happened. And this man has no sin. He's innocent. And notice what it says, all the people who had been mocking Jesus. It says in verse 48, all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, which is to say they went home going, what have we done? There's something about this man. Look at the elements. Look at the sky. Feel the rocks beneath us. Look at the temple. The sacred curtain has been torn. No, it happened. And if this happened, it changes everything. If this, in fact, is true, even if today you wrestle with the percentages, the actual mathematical possibility of whether or not this happened, if there remains a 1% chance in your mind that this happened, you must acknowledge that if, in fact, it did, even if in your mind it's only 1%, it changes everything. Life as we know it is altered. Ironically, for what it's worth, that is even how we record time. B.C., A.D., it all hinges on an event that happened. Now, if it didn't happen, we are very, very pitiful. And the Bible even says that. If he is not raised from the dead of all people on the earth, we are most pitiful. And we are here playing charades and games and using a crutch, as it's been said, to make ourselves feel better. But oh, if it happened, of all people, we are most blessed. 
For Jesus has once and for all defeated the power of sin and the fear and pull of death. And now the Bible says who Jesus sets free is free indeed. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Now we don't even fear death itself. Now we are free by definition. No, that, that happened. Now if John 3, 16 happened, that means we can live Colossians 3.16. In Colossians 3.16, let's read it again. It says, let the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? It's what we just spoke of for the last 10 minutes. Let the message of Jesus, church home, dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts, to God. Can I read this to you in the message? Eugene Peterson says this, let the word of Christ, the message, the gospel, have the run of the house. And I just want to say that about our church. Our name is Church Home. Our name is Church House. And I'm going to tell you what's going to have the run of this house. The run of this house is not going to be a board. It's not going to be a pastor. It's not going to be somebody's opinion. What is going to run this house and run this church is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it happened. It happened. So what is going to run church home? The gospel. What is going to help church home make decisions? The gospel. What are the priorities of church home? The gospel. What is our passion of church home? The gospel. What's the mission of church home? The gospel. The gospel. If you don't like the gospel, you won't like church home. It's going to have the run of the house. What runs this church is the message about Jesus. Give it plenty of room in your lives. You ever had an accomplishment so great? Somebody gave you a trophy. Somebody gave you a plaque. Somebody gave you a commemorative piece. And it's so great. And it's so wonderful. And you want everybody to see it, that you give it plenty of room on the mantle. You give it plenty of room in a prominent place in your house. Now, I have no experience with trophies of this level. <laughs> but I have heard, and I've been to friends' houses who have really great trophies. And they're in places of, well, proper places where they should be because of the level of significance, accomplishment of what that trophy represents. It's so when you walk in, that trophy most likely is in the focal point. It's the focal point. It's the focal point. It's naturally where your eye go, and you go, did you win the, yeah. You mean you were a part? Yeah. Wow. It's a conversation piece. It's a focal point, And you give it plenty of room. And if your spouse puts other stuff on the mantle, you take it off. Because in 1976, you won the state championship. You give it plenty of room. That's, that's, that's what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae. He's saying, don't let anybody crowd the gospel. Don't complicate the gospel. Don't make it hard for people to see what Jesus has done for them. Make it obvious, which speaks to the orientation of our lives, our conversation, and our words, and our thoughts, and even the orientation of our gatherings, that it should not be hard to walk into church home. It should not be hard to walk into your home and my home, and for people to have to kind of read into the fact that maybe, possibly, perchance, Jesus might be the most important person to you. One old preacher said to me, he said, Judah, this message you're preparing, did Jesus have to die for you to preach this message? Because if Jesus didn't have to die and rise again for you to preach this message, it's not worth preaching. Boy, that never left me. That conviction of whatever I preach today, if this sermon can sustain itself without the finished work of Jesus, it's not worth sermonizing. Every story we tell and sermon we preach in this home, in this church home, has to be anchored to, and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He went to the cross with my name in mind. He rose again on the third day, and he reigns forever, and I'm free indeed because of Jesus. Without that, we're here. This is just a pep rally. But it becomes a sacred celebration of community anchored to our Messiah and our Savior who has changed everything. And so naturally, if I could say, 
Paul says, I, I, it needs to dwell. I love this word dwell. The gospel, the gospel, which by the way is a term used to summarize the story of Jesus or the story of God. And the term gospel means good news. He says, I want the news that is so good to dwell. Listen to the word dwell, dwell. I don't want it to go in and out. I don't want it to be seasonal. I don't want you to have kind of periodical emphasis. I want it to dwell. I want it to dwell. Every time you gather, I want the gospel of Jesus. I want the story of Jesus. I want the message of Jesus. He died. He rose again, resurrected, reigns forevermore. His, sin, his blood has covered your sins. As crazy and wild as that might sound, it's supposed to dwell in us richly in the early church and the early Christians. The reality of the gospel of Jesus was so real that many of the lifestyles of believers were completely misunderstood. Did you know historically, one of the first rumors about the early Christians is that we ate each other. Or more specifically, we ate little babies. This is true. And the reason for this is because the gospel was so real and so tangible to the first Christians when they would see children who were unwanted and had no homes, they would just, without even thinking, without even praying, without even consulting their spouses, they would take these children and instantly adopt them off the streets. And so one of the first early rumors of our, some of our predecessors was that they must be taking those children to eat them because no one in their right mind would just take kids off the street and raise them unless the gospel dwells in you richly. One of the other early misunderstandings about our lifestyles because Christians in the early days would walk around and this idea of family was so real, they would call each other, hey, you are my brother, you're my sister. People started hearing that and go, this is weird. And then they would see a bunch of brothers and sisters going into each other's homes all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And they're all, and then they're greeting each other with a kiss on the cheek and stuff. They're like, okay. And so one of the second foremost rumors was that we were doing a bunch of orgies. This is a true story, historically. Because they're all calling each other brother and sister. And they're always in each other's homes. And they're always kissing each other and loving each other. So it must be sexual. It must be lustful. It must be dirty. When the gospel dwells in you richly, you'll live a life that is abnormal. By the way, what is normal anymore? <laughs> normal is like negative, mean, not nice. Who wants to be normal? I want to be. Does the, does the message dwell in us so richly that sometimes people misunderstand because we love so deeply and we care so compassionately? I wonder if that's what God's trying to do in our lives. Do we love each other like that? Do we are in each other's homes? Are we caring for one another? Are we taking care of those who don't have a home and a family? I suppose some things sometimes you don't have to pray about. When the gospel dwells in you richly. I look at that word richly and I thought, I know how people get rich. They make a lot of deposits. I don't mean to make it real crude, but they, you know, however they got that, when they make that, it just piles up. We need to continue to make significant, regular, perpetual deposits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, isn't it crazy? You always got to go back to the future. You got to go back. If you grew up in Sunday school, you're blessed. You got to go back to Sunday school and rehearse the fundamentals, for the fundamentals are the foundation. And it is clear in Scripture that the foundations are absolutely essential. And we must rehearse the foundations over and over. Let the word of Christ dwell. Let the gospel dwell in you richly. Can I make one more um, observation of this concept gospel? And then I'm going to give you two points. Can you imagine? Two points. If you've been in this church any length of time, when I give out points, it's a rarity and it's a gift from God to the concrete sequentials. You're like, oh, dear God, thank you, Jesus. It's been too long. But the word gospel means good news. And I was just thinking about it and I was praying. I said, Lord, why, why, isn't, why isn't the good news? It, it, it doesn't seem always good in our life. It doesn't always seem like news. Look, I looked up the word news on my phone. I looked it up in Google, which is a, a, a very dependable. <laughs> and, 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 and one of the definitions, actually the first definition of news is, 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 is newly, newly, received information, newly, right? So breaking news. And if you know anything about the news industry, it's like news. Whoever gets to break the story first, it's news. News now, by definition, is kind of like, it's new. New is in news. New, new. And I was just thinking on that. I said, Lord, why does the good news become 
old news. Why do I treat the gospel more like history and not like news? And God said, because it doesn't stay new. And if it doesn't stay new, you share it like history and not news. And I felt like God started speaking to me. If you'll take my message in environments where it is news, it'll stay new. But you got to take it where it's news. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with the newness of the gospel, the freshness of the gospel, the invigoration of the gospel, man, you take the gospel where it is new and it's news and someone goes, what? And you go, yeah, <laughs> Jesus loves you no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Are you sure? I promise. Oh my gosh. No way, yeah, and you're by the water cooler and you're at work and your coworker starts crying and you start crying and people walk by like, what's wrong? Just leave us alone, it's new. I just shared news with this person and we assume that everybody knows, oh, has not culture spoken loudly enough? Clearly people do not know the good news. Oh, they know the bad news, they know religion, they know formation, they know behavioral correction, but do they know the scandalous, unconditional love of God that is available to all? So let us, like couriers and carriers, go to the streets and take the good news where it's new and it'll stay fresh to us. And then it stays news and not history. It stays breaking news, which is the nature of the story of Jesus. And I conclude with two points. Paul says, let the word of Christ, let the good news, the gospel dwell in you richly. Be rich in the gospel. Be rich in the gospel. And then he says, comma, and he gives us essentially two reasons how we do this as a church. Two reasons, or I should say two ways that we do this as a church. Number one, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now I paused and I read that and I thought, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't say teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So I started thinking, I started looking at other scriptures. How many know scripture, interpret scripture? You can't take one verse and just zero in. That's called eisegesis. We believe in exegesis, which is scripture, always interpret scripture. And you gotta keep everything in its context, put it back in the story, recognize what's going around, right? So you gotta kinda think on it, let it breathe. If you're confused by a verse, think on it the whole day. Talk about it, talk to your spouse, talk to your friend, talk to your coworker, talk to a teammate, and just process the scripture. And so I'm processing it over some time, and I'm like, what would teaching and admonishing one another and all wisdom, what's the context is the gospel, and then it dawned on me. And so I text three scholars, two who are PhDs, so I can count on them, you know? And they love Jesus, and so I text them, I said, is, am I reading this right? Colossians 3, 16, when it says teaching and admonishing one another all wisdom, it means that all of our teaching, by the way, we're supposed to teach each other. Did you know that in community? We're supposed to teach each other. Church, for some reason, has become like, well, I hope the pastor's got a good teaching today because I need a good one. You're supposed to be the teacher too. Don't leave this all to me, please. I don't got that much material. But your journey, your experience, your relationship with Jesus needs to teach me. And we teach each other. But let all of our teaching and encouraging and admonishing be done in context of the gospel. Which is to say, every time we encourage, teach, or I should say disagree with each other, it should always anchor itself in Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. If you come to me with a financial crisis, I probably am not the best guy to talk to, okay? I don't even know how much money I make. That is up to Chelsea in Jesus' name. But I saw I might have a couple tips, a couple friends of mine that are business people. I might say, you know, I think you should maybe do this and this and this, but you know what I'm going to end with? You know why I can give you admonishment? You know why I can give you teaching? You know why I'm qualified? Because I'm redeemed just like you. And so if we're talking about finances, which is not my lane or my expertise, I am going to be able to teach and admonish you because I know one thing. I know the gospel because I once was dead and now I'm alive. And I know that if Jesus loves me, this I know for the 
the Bible tells me so and he died. I know Jesus cares about your budget. He cares about your savings. He cares about your checking. And so if all my, all my advice is dumb and stupid, if I'm like, put it all in Bitcoin, take all your money, sell your house, put it in Bitcoin. If that's my advice, at least at the end of my Bitcoin speech, I look at you and say, but you know what? You are saved and you are forgiven and you are loved and God is proud of you. In fact, grab my hand, let's pray as fast as we can. And remember that this, our whole lives revolve around Jesus and what he did on the cross. And if it happened, it changes everything, even our financial plans. That's what Paul is saying. That don't let, don't, no, no, church home, don't you get too sophisticated now that you got, you got money seminars that don't get back to Jesus. Don't get so smart now that you forget that what changes everything is not just that financial book you wrote or you read, but it's the story of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I could be a counselor now too. I can admonish people if that's the qualification. I may not know everything about everything and don't have to pretend I do, which is classic Christendom. Don't have to pretend I do. But one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was broken, now you're putting me back together again. And I believe that God can do that for you. May we be that kind of church. May we be the kind of church that other people around town go, man, you know those church home people, man. You try to talk to them about anything, and it's always, Jesus died on the sin, from a crawling sins. And I, you know, you know, I mean, I just need some good old-fashioned advice. It's the best stuff we got. It's the best stuff we got. You help me with my marriage. Well, here's a couple things. But you know, the most powerful thing about your marriage is that Jesus, he was broken apart so that your marriage could be whole. And I just believe that Jesus loves you and cares for your marriage. And if you've lost your marriage, Jesus can restore and Jesus can heal and Jesus can, yeah, yeah. Let him, let, let him talk about us like that. And those church home people, oh, Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus this. Yeah, because he changes everything. And lastly, lastly, it says, teach and admonish one another. And I love this part. And sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Can I read this to you in the Message Bible? Look what it says. It says, and sing, sing your hearts out to God. I go back to the ESV and one scholar says, with thankfulness in your hearts, comma, with thankfulness in your hearts, it actually, in the original language, it incites this idea of passionately. Now, I'm going to tell you something about Christianity. We have always been a singing faith. And some of you are like, man, I don't really like the concert part of church. It's not really my vibe. The singing part, it's not really, I like the talking part. But you got to understand something historically. We're not here putting on concerts. This is not a gig. This is not a show. We're actively involving ourselves in what has been happening for thousands of years amongst Jesus worshipers and God, and God followers. And that is we sing out what we believe about our God. And when I sing out what I believe about my God, especially when I start to put some thankfulness behind it and some gratitude behind it, because all of a sudden I realize I was a lost cause if it had not been for Jesus. So it doesn't matter if we got somebody up here singing with no band or we got a big band or we got lights and hazers. When the music starts, I am going to use it as an opportunity to let the gospel dwell in me richly. And so that's why some of my background and some of my tradition is that singing is done passionately. I am not here to say that you got to sing as loud as I do. I'm not here to say that those who lift their hands are more spiritual than those who don't lift their hands. But I am saying that when we sing, the Bible says you sing with a heartfelt gratitude and passion. Because when you sing, your life continues to change and transform. Oh, church, we're not just singing for God. We're singing for each other. I need to hear you sing. When you sing, you help me sing. And when I hear myself sing out what I believe, about God, the word of Christ dwells in me richer and richer and richer. And I sing in my car and I sing in the shower and that's TMI. But when we get together and sing, it's unlike anything else. 
We get together. We start singing. Every night I go to bed and my dad named me Judah. My mom and dad named me Judah, which means praise. And my dad would sing that song. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Almost every night of my adolescent life, my dad would sing. Let his life be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. I didn't realize it, but that has power in it. When you start to sing out what we believe about our God, when you name things and say, no, let it be a sweet, and in a moment, the band's going to come, which I'm hoping is soon. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just hope that Philip's back there somewhere. <laughs> there they are. There's Esther. And um, yeah, give them a hand. They're amazing. <laughs> And, um, you know, part of our future is, is singing with passion. And we're going to sing with more passion. And people will say, listen, man, I, I don't need a pep rally. Neither do I. But what I need is for the gospel to get richer and deeper and wider and more prominent and more prevalent in my life. And Paul says, sing your hearts out. Sing your hearts out to God. And when you do that, the word, the message of Jesus, it grows and it swells in your soul. And so this week and then next week, and I want to really encourage you that you join us next week for church. Next week for church is Palm Sunday. And if you know about Palm Sunday, it's when Jesus entered the city in which he would be crucified and they worshiped him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so next week, I'm going to speak for just about 20 minutes, which is about half of what I normally do. And the rest of the time, we're gonna sing our hearts out to God. And on Palm Sunday, we are gonna join the long lineage of the singing faith of Christianity. And we are gonna sing out our faith. And as we sing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, we're gonna hear each other sing. And listen to me, I need you to sing. I need you to sing. Because sometimes I don't have the energy to sing. I don't have the faith to sing. I feel too weak to sing. And that's why we come into the assembly and we come into the gathering. And sometimes when I can't sing, Larry will sing. And when I'm standing next to Larry and I hear Larry singing, I'm thinking, man, that is true. Man, that is real. I hear Philip singing or Esther singing, and I look up at those lyrics, and I say, God, I'm weak, and I'm weary, and I'm fearful. I'm going through, but I see these lyrics, and I know it's true. And so by faith now, this is difficult. It don't feel comfortable, but I'm going to go ahead and sing. I don't even hold a tune very good, God, but I'm going to make a joyful noise, and I'm going to sing this out. It is more spiritual than you think it is. I'm telling you, it can change your worldview. It can change your perspective. It can change how you're feeling on the inside. It can shift your emotional discipline position as we sing out in faith. Are you ready to sing? Before we do, this is called the bait and switch, but before we do, I want you to close your eyes because I can't sing unless we give every single person in this room an opportunity to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, Judah, I believe what you're saying, I believe. It is time for me. I came here today, maybe invited by a friend, maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, but I know that what you just declared has happened, that Jesus died. He became sin so that I could become right with God, and he rose again, and he lives forever, and he has changed everything. He's changed the world. He's changed the universe, and he's changed my life, and I want to accept him as Lord and Savior and Messiah and King and God, and I want to give him the rest of my days and into eternity. If that's you on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and put it right back down. I believe anybody who raises their hand on the outside, it becomes all the more real to you on the inside. So that's why I ask you to raise your hand. You know who you are. One, God loves you. Two, you'll never be the same. Three, if that's you, shoot your hand up all over the room. I receive. I believe and I receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Father, you see every hand in this room which represents an eternal soul that is now yours for forever and ever without end. I thank you past, present, and future sins are covered and forgiven in Jesus' name. Now, Father, we thank you. You're going to meet us now as we sing and we sing our hearts out to you. If you're physically able and willing, would you stand with us? And come on, let's sing to our great God. Come on, church.